The following audio is from a sermon series called Recalibrate. In this sermon series, we take a look at the DNA of Sacred City Church, the identities and rhythms that are given to us in the gospel, and how we live together in community and on mission. For more information on Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. I know it got kind of heavy there, that last verse, so we'll get, we'll get around to that. Uh, good morning. My name's Sam. I am the pastor here at Sacred City Church. It is uh, my privilege to be with you this morning. I am so excited for today. Uh, what a great day to celebrate. In case you didn't know, Resurrection Sunday is the day that we celebrate the brightest day in human history. A day that was loaded with potential, steeped in significance. What happened on this day centuries ago ago, not only changed the trajectory of individuals' lives, but the trajectory of the cosmos. Yet Easter has sort of lost its significance in some ways as it becomes commercialized. It's devolved into a day to wear pastels, to eat ham with your family, and to look for little plastic eggs. Now, I'm not knocking that. I've got plans to do all of those things today. I'm wearing my pastels. Uh, But it's easy to lose the significance of this day. Now, sure, church attendance is up all throughout our city. Uh, People are going to, to sit and hear the words of the gospel proclaimed over them. Yet for many, people are sitting there in the pews and they're checking out. Their minds are wandering as there's talk of an empty tomb. And... Chances are, by next Sunday, if not by this afternoon, people will forget the significance of Resurrection Sunday. We'll go on business as usual. Now, I hope by identifying this trend, I'm not putting you off. I'm not trying to guilt you if you're new, if you're a visitor. I'm not trying to guilt you to come back next week. That's not what I want. That's a terrible motivator. But I want to raise the question, why is this? How can we, whether we're, we're church, we've grown up in church all of our life, and we know the truth, 
or if we're unchurched and this is kind of new information for us, how can we be unfazed by this truth that there was a dead man and now he's alive? Now, I think there are two reasons. Uh, the first one I don't have time to really dig into this week, but I want to at least acknowledge it. Some people might just be skeptical. Right? They might think this whole thing's a hoax, fiction at best. But if you give yourself to studying the resurrection and examining history, there's a lot of evidence both within Scripture and outside of Scripture that points to the reality of this happening as a historical event. For example, James, the the guy who's responsible for writing one of the books in our New Testament, he was Jesus' half-brother. Now, all throughout Jesus' ministry, James thought Jesus was a kook. Jesus goes around preaching, doing miracles, and James was dismissing him. And then all of a sudden, the the resurrected Jesus shows up, and he believes. Now, I'm an older brother. I've got two younger brothers. And let me tell you, it is really hard to convince your younger siblings that you're God. (laughs) Jesus did it. James goes on to become a pastor. Or Paul, for example. The Apostle Paul, who wrote over half of the New Testament. Paul was an opponent to Jesus. He hated Christians. He was responsible for, for the martyrdom of Stephen, who was the first martyr. He was holding the cloak while people are throwing stones. And then Paul has this experience where the resurrected Jesus shows up before him and he changes instantly. Not to mention the 500 plus witnesses, the countless proofs that Jesus did in the time that he was resurrected to his ascension 40 days later. Then you examine 1 Corinthians 15 where the apostle Paul puts before us the resurrection and says this is the most important doctrine of the church. That if there is no resurrection, there is no reason to have faith in Jesus. Now, if the resurrection is is fake, if it's a hoax, that's a pretty flimsy hook to rest the entirety of a Christian faith on. But he says it's true, therefore our faith is not futile. Now, the external evidences, you can go to uh, uh, the history, Josephus, you can go to other uh, Jewish scholars at the time. There is never a dispute that the tomb is empty, not one. Even if you look into some of, the, um, uh, some of the historical mandates that come after this, this moment in time, there, there's a thing called the, the Nazareth inscription where the, the emperor at the time said you can't move bodies anymore. Right? Something happened where Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb. There's a lot of evidence that points towards the resurrection happening. But I don't think it's a lack of evidence or skepticism that causes most people to shrug off the resurrection. In fact, I think if you do a thorough examination, it takes just as much faith to say the resurrection doesn't exist as it does to say that the resurrection is real. Let me submit to you what I believe is the biggest obstacle for people being enthralled with this news of the resurrection. It's a lack of imagination. It's a lack of Christian imagination. Now, I realize that might sound strange, right? I've got a, my, my oldest is turning four years old in a couple of days. He is packed with imagination. He can take a paper towel roll, and within 20 minutes, that has become 20 different things. And imagination is this thing that we typically ascribe to childhood, that, that once, we, once we get beyond childhood, we can leave imagination behind us. But let me tell you, our society has been advanced by imagination. Right? What do you think automobiles are? That was a product of somebody's imagination. 
Why do you think Elon Musk is one of the most successful entrepreneurs and businessmen of ever? It's because he has imagination. He has the ability to look and see what could be. He has the ability to look out and see the potential. This is what imagination is. Imagination has nothing to do with the naivety of believing fairy tales. Imagination is the ability to see what could be possible. And Christian imagination is the ability to see what could be possible in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now what this means is that Christianity is way more than Jesus just going to the cross to die for your sins. So that is an important part of Christian faith. If you lose that, you lose Christianity. But there's so much more to that. If, if the cross is the only piece that we focus on, then our imaginations will suffer, will become disenchanted and bored with this world. But if we have a healthy Christian imagination, it expands our sense of what is possible with God and it fills us with optimism. Now the last couple months, we have been going through a sermon series uh, together as a church where we've been subtly broadening our imagination. We've explored how the gospel of grace forgives us of our sins, but even more so, it gives us a new life with Christ, that God adopts us into his family as children. Right, so our imagination starts going, what does it look like to live as a son or daughter of the Most High King? What does it mean for us to be missionaries sent to the city, to be, to be servants, to take the posture of our Savior and to serve those around us, to be disciples and learners of the way of Christ? And then we, we see how our imagination broadens as we live in this new identity. We create a gospel culture, a loving, honest, and joyful community that is devoted to Jesus. Now, this requires imagination. To do this successfully and compelling, this requires Christian imagination because we're looking at everything and asking the question, what could Jesus do with this? And you'll be surprised what he can do. See, when Jesus goes to work, when he's broadening our trust in him and banishing our fears, people change big time. He takes broken, self-centered jerks and transforms us into the best, truest version of ourself. Now this means that Christians should be the most joyful, easygoing, loving, honest, safe, compassionate, and generous people in our city. And as God does this with individuals and he piles us together within his church, the church becomes an outpost for the kingdom of God. See, what we're doing here, we're not playing church. We're, we're, we're being a sign, an outpost to what, the heaven, what heaven is going to be like when Jesus comes back. Now today, we're going to celebrate Resurrection Sunday and we're going to close this series. Uh, we're going to marry them together by examining what all of this, what church, what gospel community is moving toward. Now, Harvey Kahn, who is a professor at Westminster Seminary, he said this, the church is a model home of the new neighborhood Christ is building for eternity. That means a gospel-centered church is always pointing to the future reality of heaven. 
But there's a problem. When we hear talk of heaven, a lot of times we remain indifferent, uh, unimpressed. Again, this comes back to our lack of imagination. We think of cartoon stereotypes floating on a cloud, wearing a diaper, playing harp for all eternity. Right? Nobody wants that. Right? If that's what heaven is, we're asking, is there another option? See, that caricature of heaven is stuffy and boring. Not to mention, it's radically disingenuous with what Scripture tells us heaven will be like. See, this is why we come to Revelation 21 today. This is a a book that God has given the Apostle John a vision of what the future will be like. Now, there's uh, a lot of fascination with the book of Revelation. Sometimes it's an unhealthy fascination. Uh, But there's something especially fascinating about these eight verses that we're looking at today. Because four times... In this passage, we are told about something new that's about to happen. And we love what's new, don't we? I mean, I'm constantly scouring iTunes for new music. It's like I've got 200,000 songs in my library, but there's just got to be something better out there. We're always looking forward to the next piece of technology, new clothes, maybe a new car, new movies. We just love what's new because everything, it seems, that we already have, have has an expiration date. It seems like if it's not new, it's, it's already dated. It's, it's fading away. And, and if you look at Romans chapter 8, Scripture validates this. We're told creation is subject to futility. It's, it's bonded to death and brokenness. And the late great theologian uh, uh, Bob Dylan captures this perfectly in his song, Everything is Broken. He says, broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts, broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. We look out and we see disease and cancer. We see wars and murder, drug epidemics. We see more and more fatherless children. We see racial and social injustice. In our own lives, in close proximity, there are broken relationships and marriages. There's the devastation, grief, and sadness that all of these things bring. And on top of it, to make it worse, it's like our, our bodies are wasting away. We fight death with diets, exercise, makeup, and medicine. Just, just trying to push death and decay further and further away. But eventually it catches up with us. We see this even happening with, with the societies that will outlive us. Like Rome collapsed. Not to mention the entirety of earth is fading away. It's a hot mess, guys. And if you're familiar with the overarching biblical narrative, you know that it wasn't always like this. God created paradise for Adam and Eve, this place called Eden, where brokenness was an absurdity, absolutely foreign. There is not, this is a place where there was no resemblance of of brokenness, of sorrow or sin. It was perfect. Work was meaningful, relationships were fulfilling, and the environment was blissful. And the best part of Eden was that God and man were together. 
Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, known and knowing God. Absolutely surreal. Like it takes, it takes incredible, incredible imagination to even picture this. But all this is horrendously disrupted with the entry of sin in this world. Right? We hear about the fall in Genesis chapter three where Adam and Eve take the forbidden fruit and they sink their teeth into it. And in that moment, creation begins to unravel. Things go downhill incredibly fast. If it were not for Jesus upholding the world, which we're told that he's doing that in Hebrews chapter one, this world would simply fall apart. The fall marred relationships. Adam and Eve lost intimacy with God and they were removed from paradise for their own safety. And instead of paradise, humanity from this point for, from that point forward would now call broken, death-prone world home. Now it's with this reality in the backdrop. Like we have to set the stage here before we go to, to Revelation 21 because what we see here, if we understand that, Revelation 21 is incredibly good news. If you'd open up your Bibles with me, we're gonna be in Revelation 21. That's page uh, 603 on the Pew Bible, I believe. And let's take a look at verses one and two. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now it's important for us to see here that the scope and the impact of the gospel isn't just about some sort of internal heart change. It's so much bigger than this. See, the end result of the gospel, what everything is working toward is a renewed heaven and a renewed earth where everything is made new. The old earth will pass away and a new city from heaven will come down and land here on earth. It's gonna be nuts. Now this passage, when we read it, it can cause a little bit of confusion here because a translation from the Greek to the English, it, is, it needs to be built out a little bit to really understand what's going on because we look at this and it looks like God might be throwing the old earth away, doing away with it, destroying it, but that's not what's happening here. There are actually two different Greek words that can be used for the word, the English word new. There's kainos and neos. Now neos is associated with something that's like brand new, it's, it's young, it's, it's brand spanking new. If Trent were to come in uh, next week and have a brand new guitar, that guitar would be neo, so it would be new, right from the, you know, the guitar dealership, whatever. That's not really a thing. But that's not what God's talking about here. He's not talking about neo, so that's not what actually John is talking about here. He's, he actually uses the word kainos, Kainos is not a word about duration. It's a word about quality, about newness. It means brightness and beauty and vividness and strength. Now, if you've been to a good barber shop, right, you've got a good haircut, a, a hot shave, you walk out of there and you feel like a new man, right? That's, that's kainos. You're, you're not actually new, right? You're still the same person, but you feel new. There's this sort of uh, uh, intensified vigor, 
Order is restored. The flyaways have been trimmed down. Your unibrow has been dealt with. The nose hair's gone. Right? You feel like a new man. But the haircut analogy breaks down here because going and getting your haircut doesn't permanently eradicate the grays, the bald spots that you've picked up over time. To really experience kinos at the barbershop, it would include all that. Haircut, grays away, bald spots filled in, right? Completely restored, back to its prime, back like when you were in your 20s. Now this is what John is saying is happening here in Revelation 21 with creation. God is renewing heaven and earth beyond its prime. It's like he's, the old world isn't being tossed out. He's not starting from scratch. He's renewing this earth. He's reversing this curse. In fact, if you go to verse 5, you've got to find it. He said, Jesus, it says, and he who is seated on the throne. Hey, that's Jesus. He says, behold, I am making all things new. See, God is in the business of renewing. And this is not, he's not just renewing sinners. He's renewing all creation. And it's not temporary. It's not like a haircut where you got to go back in four weeks. This renewal cannot be undone. Verse 4 says, the former things pass away. The first heaven and the first earth are no more. The sea is no more. Some of you might be bummed. I know we don't really live near the sea, but we like to go to the beach, the ocean, like go surf, go boat, whatever. Now, this doesn't mean that the waters are done away with. This is pointing uh, towards something else. It's symbolic. And in Isaiah 57, Isaiah says, the wicked are like the sea. He's drawing this connection where the wicked create waves of social upheaval and rebellion. And so John is using this imagery, saying there's a day when rebellion is over where social upheaval is no more, no more riots in the street, no more fighting, no more wars, absolute global peace. See, that's the kind of power that kainos carries, this renewal. It fights the effect of time and decay. Things don't get older and, and broken down. They get newer and better and stronger. I'm about to go into some daft punk there. The curse of sin, the fall, gets reversed. Creation goes from rags into a beautiful bride, adorned and ready for her husband. Now, you may have stood in a, in a chapel before. Um, you see a loved one, somebody you know, a friend. She, she's the bride this day. And you've seen her before, and she's beautiful, you know, whatever, whatever. But there's something about this day just magnificent. She's got the white on, she's got her hair done, the makeup, she's all ready. It's just a beautiful moment. Now that's what creation is going to be like. Right? If we think the Grand Canyon is breathtaking now, just wait until new creation comes. If you think the ocean view is beautiful, just wait till creation comes. The splendor of this earth, the intensity of its color, the magnitude of its beauty. Now you see here in, in verse 2, we're told that it's a new city that's coming. A holy city coming down, a new Jerusalem. And this might, if you know the, the, the story of scriptures, right, where it started in a garden, you think, right, if we're going back, the curse is being reversed, wouldn't we end up in a garden? 
There's actually two reasons why that's not the case, why it ends in a city. The first reason is that cities are where people are. We've we've taken heaven and we've transformed it into some sort of individualistic paradise where it's just me and Jesus isolated on on an island somewhere, like a little retreat house. Heaven is filled with people. It's you and Jesus and all of the other saints throughout time and space. Now, this is going to be spectacular because we're talking a city that is radically diverse. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every skin color, yet radically unified. Can you imagine if we lived in a city like that? Incredible. See, this is one of the reasons at Sacred City Church why we desire to be a multi-ethnic church. I love white folk. I'm a white folk. But listen, Jesus is doing something better, bigger than just putting together a white church. We want to be diverse because that points to the beauty of heaven. The second reason is why heaven becomes a city is is this, that, that heaven shouldn't be a city. In Genesis chapter four, Cain, the dude who killed his brother Abel, he invented a city in order to run and hide from God. Cain created a city so that he could create uh, an autonomous environment where he could be self-sustaining. Now cities are a place where you can live and, and avoid your need for God, right? If we live in a city, we don't necessarily need to go pray, give us this daily bread. Right? Supermarkets around the corner. And we don't need to pray for Jesus to intervene and heal our, our infirmities, right? The hospital's down the street. By making heaven a city, This shows us the thoroughness of redemption. God takes the very thing that was made to avoid him and transforms it into the dwelling place where people are with God. Now this is a city where there is no ghetto, there's no slum. Crime is obliterated. Sin is no more. There's no more deception or greed or systemic injustice. This is people loving each other as they were made to do. Absolute perfection. This is the city that we desire to live in, isn't it? Right? We want to live in safe neighborhoods. Now, as glorious as that city is, the most significant part of this renewed creation is that we are finally reunited with God. See, Adam and Eve were escorted out of God's presence when they had broken God's command. But in the new creation, we will be brought into God's presence. And throughout time, there have been several attempts throughout history to fabricate a man-made paradise, something that resembles heaven, but it's without God. I just finished a a documentary uh, this week uh, on Netflix about this cult that basically tried to do that. They created uh, this environment where it was always happy and joyful, but after about four years, it imploded on itself. It quickly turned from this dream into a hell. This is all over. We, we can see this anywhere. Even, even something that we, do, that we strive for in the American dream. 
carries a tint to this. Right? We, our lives, we, we, we become workaholics so that we can finally find meaning in our work. We dismiss people that are burdensome to us. We, we only keep the people in our lives that we like. We settle down in safe neighborhoods be, behind eight-foot privacy fences that keep us protected from the outside world. But here's something that we need to realize. Any paradise, any utopia, any life that is void of God is equivalent to hell. Any human fabrication of Eden without God is absolutely incomplete. It might promise everything, but it delivers on nothing. It's like having a Royals Royce with, without an engine. It's got all the bells and whistles. It looks cool, but it's not going to get you anywhere. And this takes us kind of back to the, the heavy verse here. Because John actually says, you know what, this will get you somewhere. It says that it'll land you in the lake that burns with fire the second death. And I'm not trying to become some sort of fire and brimstone preacher here. This isn't scare tactics. It's right here in our text. We have to acknowledge this. Verse, verse 8. It says, but for the cowardly, for the faithless, for the detestable, for, for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, if you are detached from God, if your life right now does not include God, that means your eternity won't either. But there's time. You have an opportunity to upgrade from this misery that will come to something that's absolutely breathtaking. Because in the deepest part of our being, in the absolute center of who we are, our desire isn't just for a better world. The desire that we have is a craving for God. St. Augustine says that our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. And it's in the new creation that we'll finally have this unfettered access to who God is. Verse three gives us a picture of what this will be like. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. See, what this tells us is this caricature that we have of God, this grumpy, upset, impatient old man who's withholding, it's not legitimate. See, this tells us that God desires to be intimate and with us. That he's tender and affectionate toward us. You see, this is possible because Jesus went to the cross for us on Good Friday. He went to the cross on account of our sins and our infirmities, and he dealt with them completely. This means we don't have to tiptoe around God. We can boldly and confidently draw near to the great King of heaven, our Lord and our Father. See, on the cross, Jesus took every ounce of wrath and displeasure God had toward us and he drank it in for himself. 
Father, he asked, Father, remove this cup from me. He's talking about the cup of wrath that he was about to drink there on the cross. He says, nevertheless, if it's your will, let it be done. And so Jesus went to the cross. He drank all of God's wrath and, and justice was satisfied. And so now, for those of us who put our faith in Jesus and dealing with our infirmities and sin, we can accept the invitation that we see in Revelation 21, verse 6, to drink from the spring of the water of life without payment. See, those are your options. You can either refuse the cup of the water of life that Jesus offers freely without payment, or you can drink in God's cup of wrath for yourself. But in the gospel, we have an out. Jesus invites us to drink. Verse seven says this, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Now how do I know if I'm a conqueror? How do I know that? How do I know that if I'm a conqueror and I can have this heritage? Well, Romans, Romans chapter eight gives us a picture of this. Paul sheds some light here. He says in verse 31 of, of Romans chapter eight, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for, uh, all, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring in any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We, have regarded, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, pointing to Jesus. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height or depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To abide in the love of Christ is what makes us conquerors. It's an offer of grace, free of charge, equally available to the foulest of sinners and the most self-righteous. We come to Jesus and we embrace him by faith, trusting his substitutionary death in our place and being a witness to the new life that he gives through the power of resurrection. See, now it's in, in this love that we experience the care of the Father. See, our Father isn't just comforting us, but he is undoing all the sadness that we experience in this life. We'll face mourning, we'll face sorrow, we'll face pain, all kinds of tribulation in this life. I, I have my own sorrows. I'm sure you have yours. But when God says that he's wiping away our tears, it means that, that God is obliterating any need for us to shed tears at all. He is establishing his kingdom of joy. That's the power of kainos. 
that history is going to work itself backwards until creation is better than it once was. Friends, this is the huge scope of the gospel. This is why Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, that all things would be renewed, that everything, not just your heart, yes, your heart, but more than that, all creation. Ray Ortland, a pastor, mentor of mine from a distance, he says this, this is the true magnitude of the biblical gospel. There will be nothing old, dilapidated, impure, or worn out in the radiant kingdom of Christ. We will encounter nothing that is a sad memory associated with it. Everything we experience, every new association and memory will exponentially increase, purify, and intensify our joy forever since it all comes from the hand of God. See, this is what the gospel offers us. This is why we rejoice on Sunday mornings every week. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. See, if this is what heaven is like, we need to wrap our minds around this. We need to let our, our imagination run free to see what God is capable of doing, to envision this glorious future. Right? And know that that day is coming where everything will be restored. But it's not just out in the future. God is beginning this work right now. The redemptive work of God is unfolding right here before us. Lives are being renewed. Hearts being transformed from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh that beats after God. Even our cities are being renewed. Right? By having a gospel culture within our city, our, our, our city has a, a light that is pushing back the darkness. And all of this is made possible because of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, everything I just said is a fairy tale. Everything else is impossible. We might as well go home. But with the resurrection of Christ, a new creation begins. Jesus is the first fruits of this new creation. It's in him and through him all things are coming alive. And it's beginning with us. Now if you want to experience this recreated world, if you want to, to enjoy the flourishing in the new heavens, new earth, God must first recreate you by faith. When our faith is in Jesus, we become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so I want to invite you, if this is your first time or maybe this is your millionth time, I want you to examine the gospel, to see what Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection, to see what he's doing, to see how he is working to make all things new and he wants to make you new. And if we can keep our eyes on what God's up to, if we can see what this glorious future is going to look like, there's no way we can be bored. That would be absurd. There's no way we can just brush off the resurrection and pretend like it's old news. If we keep the resurrection and the promise of this renewed creation before us, our fascination with God, our fascination for, for making things new, increases. Our imagination expands. As God does this, we'll start to come together as a gospel-centered church and work for the renewal of our city.
That's what Sacred City, we have a mission statement. We say we're here to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. And the reason why we're here to renew the city is because God is renewing all things. This is what is accomplished in the gospel. This is what God's doing. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you. We want to thank you for the darkest day in human history on Good Friday where Jesus went to the cross and he was crucified, he was murdered and and placed in a tomb. But even more so, Father, we want to thank you for your resurrected life that you've given in him, the power that you have to make all things new. Father, do a good work now in our hearts. Help us to, to lean on you in faith. Would you give us your spirit? Would you make this city new for the glory of God and for the good of those who love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.